As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy Magazine's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. We're at a crossroads when it comes to Russia's war in Ukraine. From some quarters, there's a call for just giving Kyiv everything it needs. Let it fight and win this war now. There's another faction that argues for staying the current course, a middle ground of sorts, of balancing escalation with the dangers of a protracted conflict. And there's a new emerging front which argues that Ukraine is but a distraction for America and that Washington should instead focus on China. What is the right path? My guest this week is a proponent for giving Ukraine more support, not less. Philip Breedlove is a retired four-star Air Force general who led U.S. forces in Europe and served as NATO's Supreme Allied Commander from 2013 to 2016. Today, he teaches at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech. Breedlove makes the case for why a protracted war, something that goes on for a few years, would be far more dangerous than the risk of a short-term escalation. He also says that the West, principally Washington, can decide the course of this war. You'll want to hear his thoughts on all of this. We began, though, with some newsy stuff, including the fact that the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin right before we went to air. As always, FP subscribers get to send in their questions, which I sometimes ask on their behalf. If you would like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. All right, here's General Philip Breedlove. General, welcome to FP Live. Thanks for having me, Ravi. It's great to have you on. So let's start with the news of the day. I think the ICC's issued an arrest warrant for Putin. How important is this? Well, I think it's very important. It's unlikely, and rather, I should say, it's very unlikely that Putin will ever actually face the court or be brought to justice in front of the court. But it's important that the court is making the charge. And what this, I think, will do is similar to what happened with Milosevic and his wars when he was named a war criminal. It allowed several nations that had been holding back to now come in on the side of this is wrong and we are going to publicly oppose what's going on in those wars. And I think that dynamic will also be in effect here in this war. Many, many uh, learned people already know that Mr. Putin and his armies are committing atrocities and war crimes every day. But now that these seemingly disparate or disconnected organizations are beginning to take these uh, decisions at that level, it's important. And so just logistically speaking, were Putin to travel to, say, a G20 meeting in, say, New Delhi, or a country that is a signatory to the ICC. How does that play out? 
Well, I think Mr. Putin will be a little more careful where he does travel. And mm. uh, he will only go to those places where he's pretty sure he will not be brought to task. This is an official declaration by a world court. And he'll have to take that into account. I, I, would, uh, I don't think that we can actually predict what might happen on the ground. But clearly, there is now the framework under which he could be brought to justice if he's in the wrong place. Sure. So let's move on to just a couple of other fairly newsy things this week. And then I want to take us through to some of the more strategic issues. So the collision uh, this week, a U.S. drone essentially downed by a Russian fighter jet. How serious is this in your view? And could it escalate? So it is serious. Um, this is not new. We've had issues in in the waters around China, if you remember some years ago, when a U.S. aircraft had to land after being damaged by a collision with a Chinese fighter. And we have had constant or near constant harassment by uh, Russian aircraft in international space, which this was. If you look on a map where this plotted out, it is far, far from Crimean waters. And remember, Crimean waters are Ukrainian waters. We do not recognize the aggressors and the occupiers of Russia. But uh, the, the real concern here, there are lots of talk about this was dangerous and it was, you know, not professional and this, that, and the other. And that's all correct. And it's all important. I think what's far more important is from the actions that we have seen on this short clip, this was deliberate. This was at purpose. And so to me, the bigger question is, Russia has taken a policy decision that it's going to harass physically and if required down these kinds of U.S. aircraft in international airspace. I think this is going to be pretty tough because now the West has to decide, is it going to make a policy decision about how it responds, or is the West simply going to allow this bad behavior to stand? Right. I should point out, of course, Russia will claim that those, you know, that was it was protecting what what it thinks is 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 its territory. Um, so there there is that perspective, of course. So actually, uh, Ravi, I would say they have uh, already acknowledged that it's not their territory. They are saying that this is in a body of water where they've declared a military, you know, exercise in danger zone. It, it, they have themselves acknowledged this is not uh, um, uh, Russian airspace. So just moving this to the, the broader issue of fighter jets in general, I mentioned that Poland has announced it'll send four MiG fighter jets to Ukraine, and that's within days. Uh, these are, of course, the first delivery of fighter jets by a NATO country. In terms of the broader war, what does that change for Ukraine to have that kind of aerial firepower? So, uh, and I, I think you might also see that Slovakia has now said they're going to send 12. Mm -hmm. So what, what has happened now is that Polis, Poland has taken a policy lead in the West and put forth that they are going to supply Western aircraft to Ukraine. And already another NATO nation has followed them. And so 
Poland is establishing the sort of leading policy in this area for the Western world. And I surely hope that even the United States and other nations now will follow Poland's lead. The important thing about these aircraft, these 12 or now uh, 16 maybe aircraft that have been offered are, they are of the ilk that can be immediately used. These are the kind of airplanes that the Ukrainians already employ and uh, they will be brought to bear rapidly. Whereas, rightly so, people recognize that if the West starts supplying Western fourth generation aircraft, it will take some time to get them online. So this is actually a really good mix. Uh, these nations in taking this policy step forward are gonna offer immediate capability and then I am I am hopeful that the West will follow their lead and find their way to providing fourth generation aircraft. And so on that, and I, I guess this is a good time now to channel some questions from our subscribers. I'll name check Heeman Cohen and Colonel Ed Ward uh, from the Air Force. Um, does Kiev truly need fighter jets to defeat Russia? Just talk to us a little bit about the the dynamics of something like that in war. So this is one of the, the great problems with the debates that are out there. Everyone only talks about, will these aircraft change this current fight? And they likely will not, because it will take some time to bring them into uh, the inventory. But what we all are hoping is that at some point, if the war is protracted, they will have an effect. But as importantly, if not more importantly, when Russia is finally out of Ukraine and Ukraine has to stand as its own nation for decades to come, it is time to start today, today building the Air Force that will be a part of the security guarantees of this nation into the future. So I wanna circle back then to the question that I began this discussion with, the more strategic stuff. There are calls to end the current sort of quote-unquote, incremental support for Ukraine and just give it all the weapons it needs now. Um, we've published several pieces along those lines. The other major faction, I think, is the status quo, who say they're balancing all these needs with the fear of escalation. And then that leads to the counter, which is that a protracted war is more dangerous than the danger of escalation. Where do you fall in this debate, what, what's the more dangerous bit uh, at this point, a protracted conflict that goes on for three years, four years, five years, or the chances of further escalation this year? So uh, if you would allow me, let me use my framework, which tracks almost exactly with yours, but I'm often asked, where is this war heading? And I always begin my answer the same way. This war will follow a path that is completely 100% dependent on Western policy. What we have learned on the battlefield in watching Ukraine is that when a well-supplied Ukrainian military force meets a Russian force in the field, the Ukrainian force wins. Ukraine dealt a strategic defeat to Russia on the north side of Kyiv. Ukraine dealt a strategic defeat to Russia on the northwest and north side of Kharkiv. And when the winter hit, Ukraine was in the middle, at least at probably the operational level, 
dealing a defeat to Russia in the vicinity of Kherson. Russia, through the winter months, has been grinding and grinding and may or may not, as we see in the last couple of days, been moving towards a more tactical level to uh, win right around Bakhmut. But now even that's in question, whether Russia is winning or not. They've had two days now of real problems. And so um, what we know is that if we provision Ukraine properly, it wins on the battlefield. So with that in mind, I see three paths forward for Ukraine. If the West takes a policy decision and says we will give Ukraine what it needs to win, Ukraine will win. And win will be determined by how much the Ukrainians decide they want to expel Russia from their land. On the other end of the spectrum, if Western support wanes or stops, Ukraine will fight bravely on, but will be overrun by the Russians eventually. Um, and that is uh, certainly an ugly uh, possibility. The real discussion is the middle course. Mm -hmm. Right now, we are giving Ukraine enough to keep it viable on the battlefield. We, I believe, have made policy decisions not to give them what they need to win because we in the West are afraid of them winning. Mr. Putin's armies have let him down in Ukraine. He, his armies are not accomplishing the goals that Mr. Putin set in Ukraine. But his battle of intimidation, or as we say in the military, his battle of deterrence is succeeding wildly. He has deterred the West from taking the steps that would allow Ukraine to win the fight. Remember, just remember that Russia was a conventional superpower, remains a nuclear superpower. They amassed their army. They crossed an internationally recognized border now three times and have taken land and occupied land inside a sovereign nation. And so are we going to allow that bad behavior to stand? That's the question before the West. So General Breedlove, it seems to me that, you know, one takeaway from what you're describing, the bit that stuck out to me the most is that Washington can essentially win this war if it chooses to um, for Ukraine. There are a couple of wrinkles here. So one is, what is the holdup? Uh, so, so why is it, do you think, that Washington isn't going ahead with the path that you're suggesting? And then I guess linked to that is the the very real fear of, of escalation, nuclear or otherwise, that, you know, we have been talking about for a while. What gives you confidence that those fears, those worries uh, can be overridden by what you're describing of a, a decision, a policy decision to win, which will lead to victory um, for Ukraine. So there you have it. You've actually laid it out completely. So I like to talk bigger than Washington. This is about the West. This is about NATO, the sure. EU, and America. We in the but West- But America is the, the dominant supplier here. Yes, clearly they are. And so we in the West do have the capability to enable Ukraine to win this fight. 
you use the appropriate wor words. We uh, have fear of Ukraine winning this fight because Mr. Putin, as I said earlier, he's winning the war of intimidation. Early in this fight, we spoke often uh, and publicly and almost as if we were speaking directly to Mr. Putin. We said we did not want to escalate to nuclear weapons. We're not going to put Western boots on the ground. And uh, we do not want to broaden this to World War III. So what does Mr. Putin feed back to us almost daily? If you do a study of the people that speak for Russia, senior people, not just uh, minor people, but almost daily, at least three or four, sometimes five times a week, there is a senior Russian that talks about this is going to lead to nuclear war. If you do this, this is nuclear war. If we lose, this is nuclear war. It's nuclear war. It's nuclear war. It's nuclear war. So they are feeding our fears back to us. On a less frequent basis, about every five to eight days, we hear a speech or someone talking about World War III and Western soldiers, especially American soldiers, will die again in Europe. And so the fears that we, that we discussed early in this uh, war are now being fed back to us in this intimidation campaign. And I believe we are very much deterred from taking these steps that would put those possibilities on the table. Mr. Putin knows that. He knows this is working for him. He's going to feed this and keep it on the front of our uh, TV and newspapers every day. Let me just add to this, because the other consideration here is the alternative. So what does a protracted conflict look like? Just walk us through, so, let's say this this continues as is, back and forth, uh, the ebb and flow of war for the next two, three years. What does that look like? So uh, here, uh, I, I'm afraid my words are not going to be encouraging to our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. I think if we continue to do what we are doing now, which is just keep Ukraine on the battlefield, but not give them what they need to win, then in the end, this will go very badly for Ukraine. Ukraine will eventually, uh, they don't have the strategic depth in manpower. They don't have the strategic depth in kit uh, and capabilities. Uh, and and if, the, if the West continues to limit what we give them and this war keeps moving to the right, I think it ends badly for Ukraine. Let's just go back to 2008. Our response in Georgia was inadequate to task. And what did Mr. Putin see? He saw that he was rewarded for his bad behavior and he still occupies about 20% of Georgia. In 2014, our response was inadequate to task. We rewarded bad behavior and Mr. Putin occupied maybe only about 12% of Ukraine, but it was some of the most important parts of Ukraine, being able to dominate Ukraine's economic spheres from the areas that they held. And now here we are in 2023 and we have before us again, are we going to once again reward bad behavior and allow Mr. Putin to hang on to even more of Ukraine, more strategic spaces, dominating Ukraine's ability to have economic viability, or are we going to seek a different ending? And I think that's the conundrum we have to face. 
You know, you mentioned 2014 and several of our subscribers from around the world um, have been prodding me to ask you about Crimea. Uh, and I'll name check a few of them, Tom Litwack, Shige Yoshida, many others. And um, I was at the Council on Foreign Relations event that you spoke at earlier this week, and it struck me because you said there, I remember that for Ukraine to be safe, Crimea has to be retaken. Uh, explain that to us a little bit. So, you know, what is the strategic significance of Crimea from a military sense, from an economic sense, from a strategic sense, and how should we think about it in the coming months? So uh, Crimea is the dominating land of this war. And just this morning, a wonderful article about uh, how nations are looking at investing in Ukraine after this. And the number one determinant of whether they will invest or not is Ukraine uh, secure. And almost everyone talked about in this article said the same thing. If Crimea is not held and uh, Ukraine is not secure, the investment will not come. And so Crimea dominates the ports of Ukraine. Uh, currently, uh, of course, Russia has just leveled Mariupol, and that port will take some time to come back. But that was an incredibly important port for moving agricultural products to market. Uh, Russia, by invading and occupying the Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea, whole Sevastopol which uh, is, of course, the big military and also, to a lesser extent, industrial port. And from the uh, ports of Crimea, uh, Russia dominates Odessa, which is uh, formerly a, a more industrial port, but has become a bit of a uh, agricultural port as well. And we saw what happened when Russia shut it off and shut it down. And so from Crimea, they dominate the ability of Ukraine to get to the sea, mm -hmm. and they dominate the economic viability of, of Ukraine in this sense. And so it's a very important that we give Ukraine the opportunity to grow once again as an economic power, as a world food power, et cetera, et cetera. Also, it's really important to see that Crimea is a huge part of the Russian ability to militarily act in Ukraine. Uh, most recently in the Battle for Kherson, the damaged and beaten troops retreated into Crimea to refit and refurb before it came out. And now we have Iranian drones being launched from Crimea, other military capabilities. Crimea is is decisive land when it comes to the long-term stability, viability, and sovereignty of Ukraine. You are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com live. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, which I use, so sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. 
So in general, given what you say about Crimea and how difficult it would be for Ukraine to take it back uh, this year, a dramatic escalation uh, in terms of support would be needed from the US and other places. This kind of raises the question, are policymakers, are people such as yourselves who are making the case you're making, is that case not being heard loud and clear in America? And, and the reason why I bring this up is Ron DeSantis. Earlier this week, uh, he hasn't yet announced uh, a presidential bid, but he did say, and I quote him, that while the U.S. has many vital national interests becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. I end quote there. That's what he said. Um, this is a governor who could become the next president of the United States, whose views clearly are based on a sense of maybe polling data, maybe that there is a strand within America that you know wants him to be saying this, wants to go along with that line of thinking. So in the policymaking community, the point of view that you have, which is pretty much on the other end of the spectrum from what someone like Ron DeSantis uh, has and has said, what does that mean? The spectrum of the debate seems to be widening to me in the U.S. Is your end not being heard clearly? Let me just take on a few things that you said. I mean, when you introduced this, you said it would be a drastic change in our support uh, for um, uh, the Ukrainians to retake Crimea. And and that, those words, those sort of very dramatic words are used often uh, inside the Beltway uh, in Washington, D.C. And I would offer that, yes, it would take a change. Whether the words being used are appropriate or not uh, is maybe not. In fact, let me just tell you that simply arming the Ukrainians with the ATACMS missile which would make all targets in Crimea vulnerable to precise attack would change Russia's ability to use that peninsula. ATACMS could sink every ship in Sevastopol if they leave them there. It would force a big change in the, the deployment of military forces on the peninsula. And once the peninsula is brought under precise persistent long-range attack, that problem changes drastically in the South. So I would make that point. Secondarily, I read uh, all of uh, Governor DeSantis. I'm from Florida. He's my governor. I read the whole thing. And if you read the whole thing, the context is a little less sharp than if you pull out that one line that all the news people are using right now about Ron DeSantis. This is what editors do, isn't it? It bring they bring <laughs> out the real flashy things in order to provoke. And we, if you, we do, and then we bring you on to explain and clarify. Yeah, and so if you listen to everything the governor said, it's a little less, little less sharp. But I, I would, I would offer that your overall point though is a good one. There is a debate out there. May I just offer that much of that debate has very little to do with actually the foreign policy implications. It has more to do with the political alignment. A lot of people are aligning with particular candidates who hold these views, and that is the determinant in that shift. And I think it's important that people like you and I and these kind of programs begin a more open debate of why it's important to not 
let Russia overrun Ukraine, that Ukraine is an important part of the Western world. It doesn't have to be in the EU. It doesn't have to be in NATO, but it is an important part. Very so I, latch on to one, I just want to latch on to one thing that you said yeah. that it's an important part of the, the Western world. So there's the, the spectrum of the American debate, um, which I uh, outlined a little bit. There's also a global debate um, where there are similar concerns, um, you know, on, on that side of the spectrum, on the Ron DeSantis side of the spectrum, um, which go along the lines of, you know, why should we support Ukraine to the degree that uh, the West is or the United States is? So I, I would, uh, but the first reaction to that question is, look what happened when Russia started a food war on the world by blocking the grain out of Ukraine. Look what happened. Look at the panic. Look at the pricing. Uh, Ukraine is an important part of the whole world. I made the point of it being a part of the Western world because Russia wants to dominate it and pull it into their part of the world uh, and once again control it as they have in the past. Very few Americans understand how important Ukraine is to America. If you were to go out like these these reporters do and go on the street and ask the, the uh, people in America about Ukraine, you would get about 0% that understand that for several decades, every American shot into space flew on a Ukrainian rocket motor. Ukraine builds really good aircraft engines around the world, so good that places like China want to buy Motor Siege and some of the other large firms in Ukraine because the rest of the world doesn't make as good of motors as them. Now, we make great motors, but the point is Ukraine is an important part of this world and an important part of the Western world, and nobody's explaining that to America's people. I would concur there. I do think we need uh, voices such as yours to better explain that point uh, and policymakers as well. You know, coming back to the military sort of outlook um, over the next few months, there's been a lot of talk of what a spring offensive uh, might look like. When would you expect Ukraine to try something along those lines? How do you see that playing out? Well, this has been a very different winter. I do not think that warfare in, in modern warfare is completely hostage to the weather. But there certainly are uh, weather effects that uh, have to be taken into account. This has been a warmer winter than Mr. Putin had hoped for. He hoped to freeze Europe out with his energy policies. But it has been a little bit warmer winter. And so we've had a more protected, muddy season. The typical Ukrainian winter goes from uh, fall to muddy to frozen to muddy to spring. And we're having more muddy time than in the past. But I do believe that when uh, the ground better favors maneuver warfare, these new units that Ukraine has been working on, these uh, lightly armored, more maneuverable units, which erase lines on the ground when people dig trenches, modern armored warfare erases those lines. And so I, I do believe that later in the spring, when the time is right, uh, Ukraine will pose an offensive. They have surprised us over and over again with their tactical and operational acumen. They have been very efficient on the battlefield. They've shown great leadership. 
and uh, they suffer problems because remember, this is an, a nation that pretty much disarmed itself mm. and now is fighting what people used to call one of the superpowers, conventional superpowers of the modern world. And they have done magnificently in those roles. And given what you say, what should we make of all the reports from the last week that Ukraine is using up a lot of its ammunition, that allies might not be able to restock that ammunition fast enough, leading up towards a potential spring offensive? What should we make of all of that? Well, I think these are facts that we need to deal with. But what I also know is we have been, as I said before, surprised by the Ukrainians' ability to to set the stage for coming operations, meaning train a new kit, bring aboard new uh, armored personnel carriers from three or four different nations, including the U.S., some tanks. And my guess is that they have been husbanding the ammunition they need to use this force that they have built. I do not know that. They have great operational security about these matters. And uh, we'll just have to see. Xi Jinping's going to Moscow Monday through Wednesday of next week. Several of our subscribers have been writing in to ask about China's role uh, in this broader conflict. Xi Jinping going there, of course, is a very calculated decision. How do you see China's role playing out over the next few months? Of course, there were all those reports um, from the American side that China was maybe planning to help Russia with lethal aid, although we didn't see any of the evidence that intelligence agencies uh, have seen on that front. But what do you make of China's role and what do you expect from Xi Jinping's visit next week? It's always important when the leaders of these two nations come together because they are going to they are going to use those meetings to benefit their individual nations and to benefit each other. But all is not perfect between uh, uh, China and Russia. I read a great article this morning, relations sour between China and Russia as Ukraine war continues. So not all is not perfect. There are things I believe that China uh, are not all that happy about. For instance, I think the waving the nuclear banner almost every day does not uh, make Xi Jinping happy. He doesn't want to see a nuclear bellicose nation on his longest border. And I think that there, uh, China looks at two things going on inside of Ukraine, the war crimes, the atrocities. I'm not sure that China wants to be associated with that. Remember our conversation about the importance of this uh, ICC declaration. And the other side is a lot of China's uh, kit is based on Russian kit they have bought and adapted in other things. And uh, look how poorly Russia's tanks have performed, how dangerous they are to the crews in them. The S-400, we heard the Russians themselves lamenting that they don't work like they were supposed to work or were sold to work. There's a lot of things that I think uh, China is looking at this war and they're being cautious about the way they do business. But clearly, it's important when these two guys talk that uh, we pay attention. I would commend to you to go back and look at the 2014 war when Russia first invaded Ukraine. Mm -hmm. 
And the world, I think, lashed out harder than Russia expected. And Russia needed to show friendship. And they went to China to cut a big petrochemical deal. And as we all now know and remember, China took advantage of Russia in a great way. And they're losing money every day on the oil in that deal they sold to China. China, I think, looks at Russia as a useful little brother, and they will go there and and they will come out with something that very much benefits China, is my guess. We're in an era of strategic interest and multi-alignment, so I guess that's true. I want to thank all of our subscribers who uh, flooded us with questions. We've got questions from subscribers and non-subscribers, but I'll just quickly name check some of the, the names I see. Uh, S. Jean, David Redpath, Ginger Thompson, Arturis Anuzis, Michael Thomas, Laurent Caroli, Ed Doherty, Tom Rupp, George Haas, Gary Dost, Matthew Tributoris, Manju Park, Dennis Bulatov, Stuart Claplin, Joanna Weschler. Thank you, all of you, for terrific questions. I've tried to chart a course through them and channel some of the things you were most interested in. But General Breedlove, this was really terrific. Thank you so much for joining me. We're just out of time. Thank you. Thanks for having me aboard. And that was General Philip Breedlove, the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. We have several interesting shows coming up later this month. If you want to track them, just go to foreignpolicy.com slash live. And if you want to watch these in video live, you can do that there too. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you next week. I'm a political analyst and columnist, Danielle Moody. And I'm writer with Jahat Ali. And we've come together to lead you away from the lies and out of the gaslight. This, this is, is Democracy Ish. Absolutely very excited to speak with the host of The Mary Trump Show, Mary Trump. This is the Republican Party. There's, there aren't different wings of it anymore. The entirety of the Republican Party is a white supremacist, fascist party. Brian Tyler Cohen. People are focused on the attacks on democracy. It, they understand that this extremism is leading to further attacks and further erosions of rights. We discuss the serious issues and threats that face our nation. Join us on Democracy-ish everywhere you get your podcasts.